This is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's News Director. So glad you could join me on this first Sunday of October. I know it doesn't feel like, like much like fall today with temperatures in the 80s. But stay tuned as we review the week in WMRA news and features from the first week of October. The National Solar Tour is shedding more light this weekend on solar-powered homes and businesses, and many of them in our area are participating this weekend. WMRA's Christopher Clymer-Kurtz has that story. Last week was also Farm to School Week at City Schools in Charlottesville, and Marguerite Gallerini met with Virginia's Secretary of Education for some of the festivities at Venable Elementary. Goats were also present, but they were outside. We also dip into the WMRA archives for a local author's story of the painful side of Shenandoah National Park and its origins. And we'll also meet the pioneering artist Howardina Pindell, who's featured at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, and her sweeping impact not only on other black women artists, but museum curators as well. That report from our partner station, WCVE. But first, for the first time in decades, a new state law makes it legal to buy and process industrial hemp in Virginia. One company in the Shenandoah Valley hopes to be the first to do just that. WMRA's Andrew Jenner has the latest. At the Mount Jackson Industrial Park, just off I-81, a white pickup pulls into a lonely parking lot beside a vacant warehouse that looks like a giant metal shoebox. At the wheel is a guy with big plans for all 40,000 square feet of it. My name is Sam Grant. I'm the managing partner of Virginia Hemp Company. Virginia Hemp is in the process of buying this building to open the first hemp manufacturing facility in the state of Virginia. At least in the modern era. As collateral damage in the drug war, industrial hemp hasn't been grown commercially in the country for decades. State and federal law has been changing quickly, though, as policymakers recognize that while industrial hemp won't get you high, it will do a lot of other stuff. We will then, in this facility, process the stalks of that into high-quality hemp fiber for use in a range of things, including high-quality clothing. That process also yields a valuable byproduct known as HURD, spelled H-U-R-D. It's a very absorbent material. We have been test marketing some in Virginia as horse bedding, chicken bedding, put it in a cage with your guinea pig. Industrial hemp has applications in the automotive industry, home building, biofuels, pharmaceuticals, foods, and all sorts of other stuff. And with somewhere in the order of 40 to 50,000 different products that can be made from the hemp plant, the opportunities are quite limitless. In 2015, the Virginia legislature created a pilot program to study industrial hemp production. Glenn Rhodes, a farmer in Rockingham County, was the very first licensed to participate. We had been growing crops for biodiesel, and there was lots of information around that hemp was this crop that would also provide biofuel if we could grow it. Working with researchers at James Madison University, his basic goal was to see if hemp could be grown here with conventional farming equipment. We used our grain drill and our combine. We wanted to plant a big enough crop to make it worth getting out the equipment to do it, but a small enough crop that if it was a failure, it wouldn't be a a disaster. He's grown about 10 acres disaster-free for each of the past three years. It's been a really good experience. I'm excited about it, and I think it will be an opportunity when the market opens up. That's where the Virginia Hemp Company comes in. Thanks to new state law that took effect this summer, it can now buy and process hemp grown by farmers such as Rhodes. It says hemp can be far more lucrative than traditional commodities and hopes to source 2,500 acres of it next year. But that won't be without its challenges. 
no matter what the profit potential, we have never grown hemp in the valley in anyone's memory. So nobody knows how to grow hemp. We don't have herbicides, insecticides, or fungicides labeled for hemp anywhere in the United States. We don't know anything about the varieties to grow. So there is such little knowledge about how to do this that we're starting out very much in a beginning stage. Bobby Clark is an extension agent in Shenandoah County. He can only recall a few times during his 30-year career working with farmers in Virginia and North Carolina when a brand new product like hemp has come along, potentially offering brand new opportunity. Canola, rabbits, ostrich production, sunflowers for sunflower oil. It's happened a few times, but this is an extremely rare thing. And their track record isn't great. The sunflower thing never got off the ground. Rabbits never got off the ground. Ostriches kind of came and went. And canola did not work out in the Virginias or Carolinas the way they wanted it to. The challenge for farmers is one of risk versus reward. Despite the successful pilot program experiences of farmers like Rhodes, all the unknowns about growing hemp here make it risky, and therefore not for everyone. The Virginia Hemp Company, though, is bullish about hemp's long-term prospects in the Shenandoah Valley. Here's Grant again. We think the financial opportunities and the almost unlimited growth of hemp as an industrial product will get us there. How's everybody doing? I know there's been a lot of presentations. You probably have a lot of burning questions. Last week, he spoke about his plans in a meeting in Mount Jackson, hoping to recruit farmers to the cause. Sam Stevens, one of the dozens who attended, is taking a wait-and-see approach. I would be interested in trying this, but they want to do 30 acres, and I'm not quite ready to do that much at one time at the beginning. There's too much risk, too much ground to tie up doing it all at one shot, and I would just like to see a little more done first. Rhodes, who also spoke at the meeting, thinks it'll all work out eventually. I believe the crop has a great future. It had a great past here in the valley. It was some of the finest hemp grown in the world. I think this will add another crop with the potential to make some pretty good money. It's too early to know yet if things will turn out that way. But at very least, Rhodes says, it's exciting to try something new. There are a few times in your life you can be at the beginning of an industry. You won't always make money early, but at least you learn, and it's been a lot of fun. For WMRA News, I'm Andrew Jenner. Across the nation this weekend through tomorrow, some 700 homeowners and organizations, including some in the WMRA listening region, are sharing their love of solar energy. WMRA's Christopher Clymer-Kurtz reports. The National Solar Tour invites interested people to visit sites tapping into solar energy, said Aaron Such, the Virginia program director for one of the tour's sponsors, Solar United Neighbors. People in Virginia, once they go solar, they're really apt to want to share their experience, what they learned, give some firsthand advice about, you know, installations or what they've done. The 70 participants in Virginia include about 20 sites with open house hours in and around the Shenandoah Valley. One is the sustainable living center and urban farm Vine and Fig in Harrisonburg. Its co-director is Tom Benevento. The sun is really such a beautiful gift. There's really no need to be digging down under the earth. The sun is around us and it's free for the taking. Many tour sites highlight solar panel technologies, but Vine and Fig's solar system is multifaceted. We have solar electric panels, photovoltaics. We also have solar greenhouses. We have a system where we're catching sunlight on a stone wall and reflecting off a pond to create a microclimate that's warmer. And we also have 
fuel fences that capture solar energy and then store that in the lignin of the wood that we can use to, to heat our houses. RSVPs are requested for the National Solar Tour. For WMRA News, I'm Christopher Clymer-Kurtz. Last week was Farm to School Week in all nine city schools in Charlottesville. The aim was to promote local agriculture and produce in schools and to get kids to eat more healthy food. On Thursday, Delegate David Toscano and Virginia's Secretary of Education, Atif Carney, visited Venable Elementary School. WMRA's Marguerite Gallerini was there, too, and filed this report. A variety of food and garden educational activities took place throughout the week, and a special menu each day featured foods provided by local farmers. Yesterday, kids at Venable Elementary School shared their special meal with Virginia Secretary of Education, Adif Carney. And it was great to have lunch with the students. Uh, I had lunch with the second graders, talked about you know school nutrition, and uh, it was great to see the variety of lunches that students are having. He says talking to kids about nutrition and gardening is more than just about food. We um, really should try to scale this at a state level and try to integrate this in our instruction. There's an opportunity through all of a variety of content areas where we can take farm to school opportunities and talk about uh, preservation and conservation of our surroundings, uh, environmental education, uh, school nutrition. Uh, it can be done in science classes, it could be done in English classes where you could do write, you know, write about it and reflect on your experiences. If you're talking about gardens and building gardens, there's a lot of mathematics. I've been a mathematics teacher, so I can see how students can engage in helping build gardens. You know, uh, there's a lot of geometry aspects uh, involved. I can see that there's a lot of connections that we can make with our curriculum. After enjoying their meal, students went outside to learn more about goat cheese and how it is made by meeting real-life goats. So what are some, some of the first things that you notice about maybe how the goats look? Yes. Um, it kind of looks like some one of the goats has a beel because all the hair is sticking down. Yeah, so they're really furry, right? Delegate David Toscano also paid the kids a quick visit. Well, this is exciting because there's so many wonderful things happening in local schools to make sure the food that the kids eat is nutritious and it's locally sourced. From what I can see, the kids like the food and, uh, you know, they don't always realize what's nutritious and what's not. And part of what's happening here is helping recognize the good things that you can eat that actually taste good. That's a wonderful change from when I went to school where we got things out of a can and there were a lot of things that weren't the best that we ate at the time. So uh, if you have good nutrition, it helps you learn better. Several studies over recent years have shown that better nutrition of school children leads to better performance in class. A recent paper from UC Berkeley showed that students at schools that partner with healthier school lunch vendors perform better on state tests. And not only that, this option is also more cost-effective compared to other policy interventions, like, for instance, class size reduction. Trista Grigsby is the farm-to-school specialist for the Virginia Department of Education, and she was there at Venable Elementary to enjoy the fruit of her labor as well. This is really exciting. She says that over the past four to five years, local food procurement in schools has doubled from less than $8 million back then to more than $15 million now coming into schools each year. It makes a huge difference in your local economies, especially for rural farmers. And anytime you're transporting locally, you're saving money on transportation, and hopefully you can get good nutrition out of it as well. For WMRA News, I'm Marguerite Gallerini.
Since it opened in 1936, Shenandoah National Park has welcomed an average of well over a million and a half visitors each year. Many of them may not know of the park's painful past. One avid hiker who researched and wrote about that past calls her book A Broken-Hearted Love Song to the Park, as WMRA's Christopher Clymer Kurtz reported in this story from 2016. I'm a hiker. I love the park. But I'm devastated about what happened. How can I live with myself being a hiker in that park? Northern Virginia resident and writer Sue Eisenfeld says her 2015 book titled Shenandoah, A Story of Conservation and Betrayal actually tells three stories. How Virginia and the federal government created Shenandoah National Park, what happened to the people who had been living there, and her own journey of discovery and understanding. In some ways, I really was looking for grace because I want to keep hiking there. It can't be all bad. And it isn't all bad. It's this beautiful, preserved place that millions of people enjoy every year. Eisenfeld spoke last week to a crowded room at James Madison University, a guest of Special Collections, which houses some of the documents Eisenfeld used in her research. Already there were many books about the park, but as an avid hiker there for years, she came across many artifacts like pottery shards, farm equipment, engines, wagon wheels, and more. She felt she had to make sense of the history for herself. If we had to create this park by throwing out thousands of people and dispossessing them, what kind of people do that? And what kind of people do that in the way it was done, i.e. handcuffing people, physically dragging them away, burning down their homes. This actually happened to some people in the park. You know, others took the money that they were paid and left, and some were okay with it. Some were happy to move into the lowlands, so I don't want to say that everyone was dispossessed, but what kind of people did this? To research, Eisenfeld hiked to cemeteries, old foundations of homes and barns, orchards. She interviewed descendants of park residents, studied maps, deeds, National Park Service records, One force behind the creation of the park was William Carson, who Eisenfeld calls a big guy in Virginia history. Eisenfeld felt she had to get to know this man, whose work to create something so beautiful caused so many people so much pain. For me, the complete turning point of the writing of the book happened because I found one sheet of paper. It was one letter that kind of changed everything for me in terms of William Carson. She explains that letter and its effect on her in her book. Eisenfeld's research also led her to JMU's Special Collections interviews with former residents, like this one from 1978, in which Maddie Yeager talks about her father. My daddy danced all night long, every day. He'd come up, he was a powerful dancer right up till he died when he was 80 years old. He danced the dance and didn't wear your ass. A flat to the floor dance. He didn't go up high. You see, I have a brother. Virginia Taylor was among those in the audience at Eisenfeld's book talk. Afterwards, she said her grandfather, Glenn, then age 17, was among those evicted from Park Land in 1936. He always had a pretty surly attitude about what happened. She said his family had farmed the land there for about 200 years. That sense of longevity helped draw Eisenfeld into the park's story. This was my first exposure to people who had been here for generations, who had fought in the Revolution, War of 1812, Civil War. And I guess I had just never known a lot of people who'd been here that long. And I really came to feel attached to them and felt like I cared about their families as if they were my own. Eisenfeld said that for many descendants of the park's former residents, especially those that still live nearby, 
the pain of the loss continues. It has not diminished for them. They feel raw emotion as if it happened yesterday and not 80 years ago. The government's use of its power of eminent domain in the establishment of national parks is not unique to the history of the Shenandoah National Park. It has played a role in the formation or expansion of Rock Creek, Mammoth Cave, Great Smoky Mountains, and Everglades National Parks, as well as Big Cypress National Preserve, the Redwood National Forest, and more. For author Sue Eisenfeld, researching and writing about the Shenandoah National Park's painful past led her to the grace she was looking for as a hiker on sacred ground. I was looking for a way that I could feel like it was okay to be here. And both from my research and also just meeting people, I felt like they were saying to me, it's okay to be here. For WMRA News, I'm Christopher Clymer Kurtz. Since the 1960s, artist Howardina Pindell has been inspiring the next generation of black women in the art world to continue breaking down barriers. Two black women working as curators organized an exhibit featuring her work at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond. Gabrielle Jones from partner station WCVE has more. Howardina Pindell is in her 70s and still creating art. I don't tire of being an artist. When she was eight, a teacher told Pindell's parents she was a talented artist and encouraged them to expose her to the art world. At a museum, she was drawn to a sculpture by conceptual artist Marcel Duchamp. Uh, One of my favorite pieces was a piece, I think it's called Why Not Sneeze or Please Sneeze, something like that. And it was the work that's playful. The VMFA exhibit, Howardina Pindell, What Remains to be Seen, features the artist paintings, mixed media, and video art so vast it spans two galleries. It's true, there's an embarrassment of riches. That's Naomi Beckwith, Manilow Senior Curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago and co-curator of the exhibit. You know, our only challenge really was editing. It was time, quite frankly, to showcase her work. Valerie Cassell Oliver is co-curator and VMFA's Lewis Family Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art. Howardina has been a very forward-thinking, innovative artist from the late 1960s and is still moving forward in that vein. To understand Pendel's impact, Beckwith says put yourself back into the 1950s, where the art world was concerned only with the artwork. Howardina was a pioneer in saying there is no way that we can look at this work again without thinking about my life, without thinking about my body as a black woman, without thinking about the social and political situation that I've come from. Pindell went to college at Boston University. She was the first black woman to earn an MFA from Yale, then was the first black woman curator at New York's Museum of Modern Art. I ended up in museum work kind of by default. In 1979, Pindell quit working as a curator and moved into teaching because of racism and gender discrimination in mainstream museums. She shared a story about getting backlash for protesting a show by a white male artist titled with the N-word. What I found was the attitude of the kind of mainstream art world was that we were censoring an artist. And then I started thinking about censorship issues, but they're censoring people of color and women. After being in a nearly fatal car accident that same year, Pendell started to incorporate more of her identity and activism into her work. Knowing that something so horrific can happen, I could have been dead. So I found that I wanted to express myself. 
Pindell has spent a lifetime making thought-provoking art and building spaces for women of color to express themselves on their own terms. VMFA's Cassell Oliver says this legacy is important to honor. So when you really think about the history of black artists in mainstream museums, the histories of black curators in mainstream museums. Howardina is a pioneer in that realm because we have not always been in positions to author our own narratives. After five decades of creating, Howardina Pendell continues to look for the next idea she wants to express. And I see it sometimes as a kind of play, and that's why it's something that I don't run out of looking forward to the next work. Pendell's upcoming exhibition in New York explores past and current atrocities, including lynching. The VMFA exhibit, What Remains to be Seen, is open through November 25th. Gabrielle Jones, WCVE News. Support for WMRA's News and Information Fund, which makes our award-winning coverage possible, is provided by Bib and Dolly Frazier, Les and Johnny Grady, Klein May Realty, Eugene Stoltzfus Architects, Joy Loving, Janet Tretner, Nancy Barber, Pam and Jim Huggins, an anonymous donor, and by a grant from a donor-advised fund of the Community Foundation of Harrisonburg in Rockingham County. You, too, can support local and regional news coverage right here on WMRA. To find out how, go to our website, WMRA.org. Mouse over news, then click on news and information fund. Of course, that website is uh, always available for you to uh, check out the archive of all of our reporting. Also, be sure to click like on Facebook at WMRA Public Radio, and you can follow me on Twitter at WMRA News to get the latest on our coverage. In the meantime, get a daily local news update on your smartphone every weekday morning. Subscribe to our news podcast. It's called the WMRA Daily. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director and morning edition host. I'll talk to you in the morning. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.